Good morning, church. Do me a favor and open your Bible to Psalm 2. And also, we don't normally do this, but you'll see how it will work. Also open your Bible to Revelation 19. We will be in both passages this morning, so uh, put a piece of paper or something, a marker in Revelation 19. Our primary text is Psalm 2, and we'll be going back and forth a little bit today, how it will work here in a moment. I'm not saying this because uh, Allison presented this morning. I'm saying this because this was planned to say this nevertheless. I want to begin by talking about mission trips. Just happened to work out that way. And uh, I've had the privilege, some of you know this, of getting to go on several different mission trips, short-term trips where you're going with a team of people to uh, perhaps somewhere else in the United States or overseas, and you're getting with missionaries. Uh, different programs, uh, places that you're going to support, church plants. I've gotten to go to Romania. It's my first mission trip. Zambia, Colombia, Germany. Alongside this, for Christian education, I've gotten to the privilege of getting to go to the UK, getting to see some great historic uh, Baptist sites. You know this about me. I'm, I wear Mennonite clothes on the outside, but I'm a Baptist on the inside, and so got to go do that. Went to Germany last summer, got to learn uh, some incredible things, walk in the steps of Martin Luther, and that's part of why I look forward to teaching a class uh, next week with you, if you're with us. Um, but I can tell you there's been, it, it would be absolutely untrue to say that the Christian life for me has been boring. It's been anything but that. Going to Romania, getting to preach God, there was something in that where I realized I, I really enjoy this. There's nothing else I'd rather do for the rest of my life. Whatever this is, I got to keep doing that. It was going to Oxford University, and there's a little, a little pub outside of Regent's Park College where we were staying and um, at this pub with my Baptist professor because we were Baptist. Of course, we had a cream soda instead of the other, other things you could have. And as we sat there right across from where C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, a group called the Inklings, if you ever heard of them, they sat and they talked about uh, nerdy things related to the Lord of Rings and, and, and other things like that. And it was there that I realized I wanted to continue doing study and I would go further in pursuing a doctorate. It was in Germany last summer, walking the steps of Martin Luther, where you see that this man was not just a, a, a brilliant writer and hilarious writer, by the way, and also the great reformer. He was also a pastor who preached every single week. And it reminded me of the calling on my life which was not primarily for the academy, but to be a pastor theologian, to want to think deeply about God's word, but also be an under-shepherd and get to be with God's people. It's so much more exciting being in the church than being in the ivory tower. And so these trips for me have been eye-opening, purpose-clarifying, and you notice how I'm talking right now, how these trips have benefited me. But yet I was supposed to be going somewhere to benefit somebody else. And this is the open secret about short-term mission trips, that more often than not, when you go on them, assuming that they're put together well, 
that you're the one who actually ends up getting blessed more than to the people you're going to see because you're witnessing things that you had never seen before. You're learning new things. And so I, part of why I bring this up to you is that my hope, you should know this, looking towards the future, we've got a Chicago mission trip that is happening this summer, but I look forward to the day when there's regular trips that, like we're not just giving, we're not just praying, but we're the ones going. And, we're, and there's multiple trips that are going to our, our missionaries that we support all over the world. It's another sermon to get us pumped up for that. But I bring this up also because when I think of missions, I've gotten to see how beneficial they can be in the preparation and then also in the debrief. A good, mark of a good mission trip is what you do beforehand and how it goes afterwards. My mission trip to Columbia, the trip itself was okay, but it was afterwards where God spoke to me uh, through getting to work with some, some um, uh, Bob and Kel Pankratz at the Oasis Ranch, I remember that, several years ago. We read a book called Foreign to Familiar. If you ever go overseas, I recommend this book, Foreign to Familiar by Sarah Lanier, and it helps us Westerners to think about how do you, how do you understand other cultures, other ways of thinking, the difference between hot cultures and cold cultures. I'll give you an example. There's a difference in how you think about relationships versus being task-oriented. When I was with those Colombian families, it was all about the family unit. When we went to do some church planning with my German friends, what do you think they were about? Getting the job done, right? Who cares about how you feel right now? Get it done. Uh, the different concepts on how do you think about time. The events at six o'clock, does that mean people begin to show up sometime after six? Or we're starting this thing at six o'clock. Big difference. Inclusion versus privacy. I, I remember Ashley Knoll. Uh, great Lutheran uh, scholar uh, last summer, he was explaining how Americans and Germans are different in how they accept you. And he said, Germans have a long front yard before you get to their front door. But once you get into that front door, you've got a friend for life. It takes a while for them to warm up, but once you're accepted, you're accepted. He said, on the other hand, what's confusing for Germans is Americans have a, a short front yard, very welcoming. But it's hard to tell when you've entered through the front door. That's, that's their perception. Interesting, right? Um, Lanier also talks about individualism versus group identity. Uh, for us in the West, we tend to think about the individual, our rights. We think about, um, we think about ourselves in comparison to other cultures that think about the greater good. How will my actions either bring honor or shame to the people that I'm associated with. And so for us in our individualistic culture that prioritizes individual rights, personal achievement, it tends to be us. I know I'm painting with a broad stroke here. There's a dirty word, and that's the word submission. You don't tell me what to do. I have my rights, right? It's my choice. It's so ingrained in us, and so we revolt at the idea of anything that would take away from our personal autonomy, submission. I found this to be fascinating in looking at Psalm 2. I'm going to read it to you, but I say all of this to, to make us think. When you think of the concept of submission, do you, what does your heart do? Does it bristle? Or if you're honest, do you really welcome the concept of authority? 
In this case, authority of God over your life. Or does your heart bristle against that? Think about that and be honest as we read this passage that Wes has already prayed over over us. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot? The king of the earth set themselves up against, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the psalmist, who I believe is David, by the way, because later in Acts 4, when the Christians are reading this very passage, they say, David says. So you can trust your New Testament interpreting here, David says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse nine, hold on to that. We will come back to that. Now, therefore, O kings, this is the response we should have. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a king from the psalmist's perspective who is coming, but from the Christian's perspective has come and will come again. And the question is, in the meantime, will we freely submit to this king before his great arrival? Will we submit to the rule of the king? Lord, help us. We come before you now, and we want to acknowledge that we will bow down to something or someone. We will serve something or someone. We will worship something or someone. It will either be the things in front of us, it will either be ourselves, or it will be you, Lord. We pray, when we look forward to that last day, give us the ability to see that everyone is one day going to bow the knee to Christ, but Lord, give us the ability to freely do that now as we anticipate that. Lord, let us see that to have chains on when it comes to Christ actually means to be free. Show us what it means to be slaves to Christ that his authority is welcomed as we look forward to that last day. Amen. There's 150 Psalms. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how there's a whole bunch of genres, different types of genres when it comes to the Psalms. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. If you want to be godly, you want to be blessed, you've got to go this way. Uh, if you're going to be wicked, you're going to go this way. And those two rails, by the way, of Psalm 1 permeate all the way through the 150 that are here. The question is, what about Psalm 2? What is, what is the genre there? So as we turn the dial to our radio station, so to speak, today, what kind of psalm is Psalm 2? It's a royal psalm or a, a kingship psalm. It is a psalm that talks about the king of Israel. If you look at verse 6 here, where God establishes his anointed, it seems like we're talking about a coronation that's happening. If you're one of those people who love the royal family, 
Uh, we have celebrities in the United States. In the UK, they have the royal family, for better or worse. And so if you got up early last Saturday morning and, and you watched Charles, who, poor man, after 74 years of waiting, finally was crowned king of, of England, of the United Kingdom, uh, you looked at that man, and if, and if a facial expression could express inner thoughts, it looked like the poor man was just thinking, let's get this over with. I am too old for this, right? And you maybe saw some of the pictures, right, where he's got the crown on him. He's got the scepter. He's got that, that golden looking thing in his hand uh, with, with a cross over it, right? And that's an image of a human king being coronated to become the king, right? And the coronation we have here. It is that of a human king. It's the king of Israel. But there's something about this passage that it's, it seems like it's something more. That in the periphery, there's another king. And we'll see that as we go on. There's a promise, but yet there's a fulfillment that takes place. There's a promise here, and later on it's fulfilled. So let's walk through the first few verses here. Verses one through three. You see the description it's a description of rebellious nations against the Lord and his anointed. They rage, they plot, they scheme. Perhaps you think of, of men throwing up their fists to God in hatred and saying, we want to be free of you. The ESV says, let us burst their bonds and let them cast, cast their cords apart from us. They want to be free from the Lord. They don't want to be ruled. They want their autonomy, Right? They think they know better. And I have to say, it's a terrifying thought to look at a society and to look at a government that looks at the Lord and says, we know better. And then the Lord looks at that society and then says, fine, have it your way. Friend, there, there's fewer things that are more terrifying than to hear the Lord say, fine, have it your way. It makes you think of Romans 1, where it describes uh, the pagans and talks about how the Lord gave them up. And that's a very stark, strong passage where it talks about how the Lord gives them up. It's the one place in the Bible where you will find that Paul will describe that the picture of God giving people up, it's not only men giving up natural relations with women, it's women giving up natural relations with men. And so the clearest description of God's uncreation Romans 1 sometime. It's a picture of uncreation. Men with men and women with women. This is what God's word says. And when he says, fine, have it your way, it's when you see things like this on display and they're celebrated. It's not what God intended. And so you look for those signs in our culture. And God says, I will give you up. Have it your way. It's the truth, though. You might think, okay, so therefore authority is not a good thing, or government is just always wicked and bad. Don't do that. Remember there's an ideal, and that's Romans 13. Just read this. God has established governing authorities, and it's a good thing. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist that have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's the ideal. Government is in place to protect good, those who are living good, and to bring justice to the wicked. That's the ideal. 
But when the government says and when society says what is up is down, what is good is wrong, what is wrong is good, and messes it all up and says, we want to be free from the Lord because we know better, you ought to be concerned. And so perhaps I would say even within the last year, as I look at our own American culture, you can feel those foundations underneath you, you shake somewhat. And so what maybe 20, 30 years ago you would have, you would have said, this is how I would describe the culture's posture towards Christians. It's much different, right, than where we are today. We can still thank the Lord for our religious freedoms, but yet the posture is different. With each passing moment, it seems to become more antagonistic. And it's a good reminder, friends, by the way, that this world is not our home. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we are of this earth. And so God looks at people like this, and what is his response? Look at the next verse, verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. NIV says the Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in response to these rebellious kings, God mocks them and sets up his own king on Zion, which is precious to him. He mocks those who mock God. If you go to the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now the whole picture has been switched, and those who were sitting and scoffing at the Lord, now the Lord is sitting on his throne in heaven, and he's laughing at them. It's not the kind of picture I had when I think about a loving God. How do you make that work, friend? Think about that. Both the God who loves his children is also the one who mocks and laughs at evil. These kings have the audacity to think they know better, and yet God is letting them borrow the air that they breathe. He gives them the dust that they are and that they will return to. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and these ants think they know better than God. And he gives them a roaring, mocking laugh and says, I have set up my own king on Zion. What's significant about Zion? Zion is where the temple was built in Jerusalem to mark the very presence of God. He says, I will establish my presence here. And then he describes further from David, David the description of this king. And this is where it gets interesting. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to my Lord, I'm putting Psalm 110 into this, pardon me. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, that's key, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the third move David makes here is that he begins to describe the king and it's actually the Lord's son and he's going to rule the nations. And so here's something I don't know if we take too much time to appreciate, but you have to consider that this. The whole Bible, though it is written by authors over a long period of time, ultimately has one divine author who stands behind it. And so when he speaks over here, in the Old Testament. Then he speaks again over here in the New Testament. You can trust that what is said here and what says he, is said here goes together. There's a trustworthiness. Scholars have called this 
intertextuality, or as common people can say, it's all connected, right? All fits together, okay? And so what's fascinating to look at is to see how Psalm 2, I don't know if you know this, is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament, especially of the Psalms. It's quoted all over the New Testament, and what you will see is that there's a promise and that there's a fulfillment. And so you can draw a line here that though this is describing a king, there is something more than just an Israelite king. Let me give you some examples. Okay, first one, Acts 13. You don't have to turn there, just here. Paul is in Antioch. Christ has risen from the dead. And Paul goes into the synagogue and he's describing the gospel message. And here's what he says. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul's telling this. And I bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, his children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so Paul's using Psalm 2 to say that when Christ is resurrected from the dead, what he has accomplished to accomplish your salvation is the moment where God is proclaiming him, the Father is proclaiming him as being worthy. The Father is elevating the Son. It's messianic, Psalm 2, 7 is. It's promise. Acts 13 is fulfillment. Hebrews 1, there's four Christological passages in the New Testament. John 1, Colossians 1 or 2. It's on the bottom left-hand side of my page. Can't remember off the top of my head. The other one is Philippians 2. And the other one is Hebrews 1 right here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making a purification for sins, this one who is eternal with the Father, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's greater than angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, here it is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So again, you get it for a second time. Hebrews 1 quoting Psalm 2-7. And so this time, the writer of Hebrews, who's describing this son who radiates the glory of God, who's also the one who's the exact imprint of his nature, so why by the way the Nicene Creed says God from God, light from light, this is where it comes from, right here, conveys this eternal sonship. You only see a human coronation in Psalm 2, but you put it together with Hebrews 1 and a window opens up and you peer into eternity and you see that there is a father who has begotten the son and a son who is from his father in eternity past. You get a window into the revelation of who our God is because the New Testament interprets the old. So you put it all together and Psalm 2 is really pointing to the eternal Son of God who has resurrected from the dead, accomplishing victory over my sin and of yours. 
Friends, when you don't just rake and get leaves, but when you dig and get diamonds, you see that there's so much happening in God's word and how intricately he has put together his plan of redemption. Hundreds of years. Talk to Billy Sargent. He's got the exact number down from when this was written to when, he, when Hebrews 1 happens. He'll figure it out for you. But you look at this whole story and you see how God has intricately put it together. And I look at your own life and go, do you think he doesn't know what he's doing with you? If he has so orchestrated his plan of redemption, doesn't he know what he's doing with every single one of us as we look to the next moment in our life and go, I don't know how you're gonna work that one out, Lord. If he can do this, he is capable of doing what he will do in your life. He has ordained it, he will bring it to pass. And so when you read your Old Testament, friend, it is a blessing to you. Only read the New Testament, and it's like walking into a movie theater in the middle of a film and seeing the climax and having no idea how you got there. But read your Old Testament all the way through, and you'll see how the whole story fits together. This is the window of God's decree to set up a king. Promise fulfillment. But there is an ultimate fulfillment of this passage, friends. And that requires us to now go to the most mysterious book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19.11. I have it up on the screen for you. And I want you to see how this king of kings is going to fulfill everything in Psalm 2. As it gives you hope, Lord willing, for the future. This describes the return of, of the Lord. Ready? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Sound familiar, this next part? And he will them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This passage describes the return of the king. The first time I had ever heard it preached was by Stephen Smith at Southwestern Seminary, and it changed my life, preaching professors there. And I want to give credit to where credit's due because of some of the insights that he shared that changed my life, and I hope you will see the same for yours. But the imagery, I want to ask you this morning, in what I just read and what I've been describing so far this morning, does it make you uncomfortable that the Bible does not describe Jesus in a domesticated form? It doesn't describe Jesus as some hippie in the first century who drives a van with a flower on it, listens to 60s and 70s music, wants to advocate that you would recycle and really cares about the environment. So it's not what you get here, right? You get an awesome Lord who makes war, and the blood of his enemies is dripping from his robe. 
Listen to the description. He's on a white horse. Usually you would ride a white horse after you're coming back from victory, but he's going into the battle and the victory is already determined beforehand. He's on a white horse. His eyes are like a flame of fire. You think about that. How redundant is that? Fire, fire flame, flame of fire. Why say that twice? It seems redundant. Unless you see how it's demonstrating penetrating knowledge. Nothing is hidden from his sight. This is a terrifying thought for those who want their personal autonomy separate from the Lord. It's a welcome thought for those of us who are on his side. He has a name written that nobody knows except for himself. You know, how many people have tried to figure out what this name is? And yet, it is a name that, what does it say? Nobody knows. And so if nobody knows, it demonstrates that he's transcendent. One scholar has put it this way. Whatever is known of him, even by revelation, does not exhaust his essence. He may reveal himself to you, but don't think for a moment that's all who he is. There's so much more. Where do you and I fit into this? Glad you asked. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. There it is. You get your own white horse too. We're following him on white horses. Think of the song that we play every single time we hop in the car with our sons in the back. We're playing kids' songs. I'm in the Lord's army. We know this one? Yes. Am I the only one who knows this? No? Okay. Getting some knots. It's good. Okay. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And so we think that perhaps we're going to go fight the Lord's battles for him with our own sword and, and white horse. And yet, I want you to know that the king does not need your help on judgment day. You want to be behind him, not in front of him, as he slays his enemies on that last day. Someone might say, okay, Aaron, how do you know I'm not going to fight in the battle? And I would say it, it points to your, your garments are the answer. Stephen Smith, like I mentioned a moment ago, puts it this way. Let's imagine it's Friday night football. The game has been played and the players are coming off the field. You see some of them and, and, and they're... Their jerseys are dirty, they're sweating, they're exhausted. And you see other athletes there, and they've got white jerseys on. No, no, no uh, grass stains or anything like that. What does that tell you? Maybe so. But they didn't play in the game. That's offensive to kickers. They didn't play in the game, right? If their jerseys are clean. And it's the same way. The king's robes are dipped in blood because he fights your battles for you. You did not accomplish your spiritual salvation and you will not accomplish your physical salvation on that last day. The word became flesh and has died in your place, friend. And that word will come back one day and that word will slay all of God's enemies. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The king doesn't need the weapons of man. He only needs his own Word. It is the word that created the universe. It is the word that will judge all things at the end. Those who conspired, mocked, and directed their hatred toward God will not have a chance. But then it says one other thing, and that's how it relates to Psalm 2. He will rule them with a rod of iron. The Greek word that is used there can be translated literally as he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Poeme. You will shepherd them with a rod of iron, if you wanted to be literal. 
It's not exactly the picture of the good shepherd who makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He has a rod of iron this time. And you think, what kind of sick shepherd shepherds with a rod of iron? The kind of shepherd who protects the sheep and drives out the wolves. The kind of shepherd who leaves the 99 for the sake of the one. The kind of shepherd who knows his sheep by name and they know him by name. He is the good shepherd. But one day, this good shepherd will have enough of the world's rebellion. And the good shepherd is going to strike. And when he does, he will tread the wine presses with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he is the shepherd king, the rider on the white horse, who fights our battles for us so we don't have to. And that is the fulfillment of what Psalm 2 points to. Ironically, I want you to consider, friend, now, how this actually for the Christian brings this terrifying description in Scripture, brings hope for us. Judgment Day brings really the Christian hope. For the this world will give us the most injustice we will endure. But for the unbeliever, this is the most justice you will ever encounter. Have you encountered injustice in this life? Have you encountered horrifying abuse at the hands of those who should know better and nobody knows about it? Have you been defrauded, defamed, and slandered? I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who has a flame of fire in his eyes and he has not missed one thing. And if there is a God who eventually will put all things right it can give you peace in the here and now to know that you don't have to be the kind of person that retaliates or even lives in bitterness. You don't have to take up the sword because he is going to take up the sword for you on that last day. You don't have to malign someone right back when they've maligned you. Instead, you put your hope in the God of justice who fulfills in Revelation 19, and you can leave it to him. You can leave injustice to him in this life because he will bring justice to you as we embark all of us in the life to come. Your king's gonna have the final word. That's the point. The king has the final word. But what's the specific application even further of Revelation 19? It's right here at the end of Psalm 2. Go back with me now. Psalm 2, verse 10. Here it is. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I thought the Bible said that the Lord is slow to anger. What do I do with verse 12 there, by the way? His wrath is quickly kindled. I think of Tim Chaley's and some others who have said this. God is patient, but when he has had enough, he has had enough. And so he is patient to endure with sinful man. But when his justice comes, it will drop and no one will be able to stop that hammer. And so with that in mind, what is our response? The right response to the king's rule is a couple of things. First, we're called to fear the Lord, friends, and not man. And we're not called to fear the forces of darkness. 
If you've heard nothing else this morning, let that picture of God mocking evil and vanquishing your enemies, let that rest with you. And if he is for you in all of your troubles, who can be against you? If he is for you in all of your suffering and in all of your challenges, for all of those who are dealing with unimaginable pain, I was talking with Justine about this last night. If you're newer with us in here, I just want to let you know how this goes. We're wearing our nicer church clothes. All of us are messed up in here. We all have our challenges that we deal with. And yet God is for us and he is not against us. He is for us and he is not against us as we encounter life's challenges. For every single mother who has dealt with pain with their children and has dealt with questions that they don't know the answer to. For every, every mother who has dealt with miscarriage, who has dealt with pain that they don't know how to express to others on this Mother's Day. For every woman who has dealt with infertility and has been dealing with, with silent suffering in a way it feels shameful to describe to others. You still have a God to know that at the end of the day, though you may deal with your pain and your suffering, this God, the Lord of heaven's armies, is for you, not against you. And where your identity is, it is found in that you are hitched to the bride in which the love will come on that last day and that marriage feast will happen and that lamb is also the lion who will conquer his enemies. Thank goodness that our identity is not in what we've done, not in how we've suffered, but it's who we are in Christ because we have the spirit living within us. Thank God for his spirit that reminds us that he is, God is for us and not against us. Fear him alone. This is the beginning of wisdom. Second, blessed are you if you take refuge in this king. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And in that wisdom from meditating on God's law, knows how the story will end and has chosen to say, I will be on the right side of on judgment day. Blessed is the man who does not take refuge in his own achievements or in his personal autonomy, but says, I would rather be a slave to Christ. Put on the shackles, Lord, and let me be the freest man of all, because my sin, those chains have been taken down, and I have Christ in me. Blessed is he who takes refuge in the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.